So Sam, um, I want to thank you for uh, coming out today out of your busy schedule. I think this has been booked for like a month now, and I've been bragging to all my friends. I was like, I got this guy. He has an amazing story. And I said, I'm not even going to pump it up because, um, I don't, you know, when you pump up a movie, then you go see, you go see it and you're like, man, yeah. that wasn't even as great as you said it was. So, But you do have an amazing story, and I just want to thank you for come, taking time out of your busy schedule because I've... I've I have stalked you on your website and I know you're out there shaking hands with, you know, movers and shakers in the world and they do a lot of things. But, um, so thank you. Thank you for taking the time out. Absolutely. Thank you. Um, but I wanted to jump right into it, man. Um, cause I, I know I have a limited amount of time with you and so many questions and, uh, I, I just want to point out that I met you at, I can't remember the name of the church. Oasis. Oasis Church, yes. Oh, I actually remember the sermon that day. And it was my first day visiting. I remember because the pastor said something he didn't mean to say. Do you remember that? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and he was, man, I've never said that. <laughs> yeah. So that was a that was a pretty funny situation. But I heard you tell your story and it resonated with me because it speaks to me personally. Like I, I see myself as you and I had a similar trajectory at life and and some of my friends are uh, incarcerated, they're or not alive, or even I don't even know which one's worse. Some of them are um, mentally disabled because they're out on the streets, experiencing trauma and drug abuse. You know, um, I'm sure you probably have seen that. Where you're like, man, they're not. They're just they're a homeless person now and having some issues. And so when you spoke, I was like, man, I stuck around. I was like, I got to shake. To me. You're like a celebrity when I saw you. That's why I was like, hey, can I shake your hand? Can I get a picture? I was fan, fanboying out. And I'm a grown man fanboying out because it's not common for people like, I'm just going to say, I'm not even going to put myself in the league as you. There's not common for people like you to your life trajectory. You know, it's, it's like, it's biblical, you know, like in the sense like how Moses' mom, he was in a dire situation, floated him down the Nile River, you know, and it's, oh no, forget that. Joseph, that's I'm probably sure. Yeah, Joseph oh, yeah, in the pit. Yeah, well, they say he went from the pit to the penthouse, right? Yeah. And um, your story just inspired me, and I, and I think it, it's important that people hear your story so that they can uh, be inspired and learn and learn about the power of uh, redemption and you know the power of of God. So, um, if you don't mind, can you just share your story at the beginning and just kind of go through it. And I'm going to interrupt occasionally with some questions, but I would just like, if you could, or you know what, we'll, we'll use church terminology. Can you share your testimony? Absolutely. If you don't mind. Thank Absolutely. you. Uh, first and foremost, thank you uh, uh, for allowing me to share my story. Uh, so I grew up in, in South LA or South Central, now known as South LA uh, in the eighties. When LA was considered the gang capital of the nation, it was considered the crack capital of the nation and, and the murder capital of the nation. I was a teenager uh, during those years. Uh, by the time I was 16, I had been shot twice. I had been stabbed. Uh, my mother's house uh, was shot up. Uh, by the time I was 18, I had been sentenced to life in prison for committing a murder uh, for the gang that I was involved in. And so I, I wasn't a choir boy. I, I, I was given as good as I got uh, in the streets. Uh, I had dropped out of school, could barely read and write, and pretty much thought that was the end of my life. Um, 
a month after my arrest, uh, my daughter was born. And I didn't know that my daughter would be the reason for me to like literally do a 180 and change my life around. Um, I went into prison, continued down the path of gangs and, and selling dope and doing all of the things that, that uh, uh, I was doing when I was in the community. Uh, and I got to know my daughter at that same time. So I was a uh, full-time gang member in, the, in, in, in prison. And then when I would come out to the visiting room, I'd be uh, a dad. Uh, first place I got to hold my daughter was in the prison visiting room, uh, Soledad. Uh, got to learn how to count with her and talk and things like that. Uh, and so as I continued down the pathway, I didn't change. And then uh, my daughter was coming to visit me of seven years into my sentence. Um, it was her seventh birthday she was coming for. Uh, I knew they were coming on the weekend, and I had gotten into an incident on the yard and was in administrative segregation headed uh, possibly back to the shoe. I, later I would learn it would be the shoe. Um, so normally my daughter would walk in the visiting room and she would see me and she'd run and I'd pick her up and I would hug her and then we'd sit down with my mom or her mom and we'd just visit uh, for eight hours. This particular time she walks into the visiting room and I can see her because I'm behind this thick, scarred up plexiglass of non-contact visiting and I'm watching her, but I can't yell to her, tell her here I am. And she's scanning the visitor room like, where is he at? And then she sees me and she kind of has this look of like, why is he back there? And so she walks towards the window. She crawls up on the, the bench and she picks up the phone. And when she picks up the phone, she sees the chains uh, from me being handcuffed and in chains. And the look of curiosity turns to one of fear. Uh, and it wasn't that she was afraid, but like scared for her dad. That's how I interpret it. And she picked up the phone and she said, Daddy, why are you back there like that and why can't I hug you? And I told her Daddy got in some trouble. And she looked at me, seven years old, so you know there's no judgment. She just wants a hug from her dad. And uh, she looks at me like she's thinking about this, deeply contemplating, and she says, well, could you not get in trouble anymore so I can hug you when I come back? And it just shook me. I mean, it, it, it like hit so hard. It was like being hit in a solar plex. And I looked at her and I could just tell that I'm messing up big time. Look who I'm hurting. And I told her, I'll try. And she said, try hard. And my mom takes the phone from her. And, then my, and in that moment, my mom says, uh, you understand now everything you do, good or bad, affects the people that love you the most. And all I could do was nod because I knew my voice would break. Like I was on the verge of crying, big 220-pound guy, Mr. Tough Guy on the prison yard, ready to cry. And, and I just looked, and I was like, wow. Uh when you're in non-contact visiting, you get an hour to visit. And so they visited after a six-hour drive up to visit me. They got to visit for an hour and then leave and go back home. And so when they were walking out, I remember my daughter stopping my mom and, and mouthing the words, try hard. Uh, I didn't know how I was going to change, but I told her I would try. Uh, and I made that promise to her. And I just, like, I struggled internally that whole night. Like, how am I going to do this? Like, I'm headed back to the shoe. I got all this stuff going on. Like, I'm, I am who I am at that time. I'm, I'm a, a person that uh, I'm a gang member. I'm uh, like, that's the life that I was living. And so, but it planted a seed in me. I wanted to change now. Didn't know how it would happen. And I don't want to make it sound like all of a sudden I came out of administrative segregation and, and I just changed. I did some more dumb stuff, ended up back in, in, in admin. Uh, but that seed began to blossom. And, and eventually I uh, worked a get my GED, then I enrolled in college, and then I started getting involved with programs. And I just, 
kept trying to figure out how do I get out of this web of, of, of gang stuff. Uh, and, and I had what I call friends that were in the gang. And, and, and I call them friends and I explain why in a minute. Uh, these are guys that, that were also immersed in the gang culture, were older than me. <clears throat> Uh, in many instances, I, I, I thought tougher than me. Uh, these were my what we call in the hood my big homies. And as I went through time with these guys, they saw me like continue to like just do the things that you do when you're involved with gangs and drugs. But one of them saw me struggling with not wanting to continue down the path, but wanting to be accepted. And um, we uh. We ended up having to come to the yard one day. Uh, it was going to be like a, a, a gang war over phones. Groups had got moved around. I don't want to be too specific, but groups had got moved around, and, and, and it was potentially uh, going to go down between our group and another uh, really large group on the yard. Uh, and when we came to the yard, I saw people that weren't out there. And I'm looking at the guys that are my big homies, and I'm like, why are we out here? We always on the front lines. Like, we, we – like – we shouldn't be the, the the soldiers. There should be other people out here. Uh, I remember uh, Sam telling me, uh, don't worry about that right now. This, this was another guy named Sam. Uh, if he hears this podcast, he's going to crack up. Uh, I'll tell you more about Sam, too, in a minute. And so he said, don't worry about that. Worry about what's in front of us right now. Uh, and so when that episode was over, I wanted to address it uh, for people who didn't show up and and uh, some of the other guys that were a little older than me were like, just let that go. And so then I said, okay, well, I, I still want to address something. I don't want to be part of this anymore. And uh, I was scared to death when I, I brought this up. And, and, and I brought it up in a unique way where I came to the yard, brought weapons to the yard, and just basically said, I'm, I'm, I'm done. And whatever we have to do, let's do it now. I'd rather I have to be stabbed up or I'm going to stab somebody. Like, I'm, I don't want to do this no more. And uh, Sam was one of the guys that was sitting on the bench. He was one of the older guys that... Every every like click has has someone that that pretty much runs things, and he said uh, his exact words, and I got I got to give it to you this way. It's just raw and cut. He said, "You know what the fuck you saying?" I said, "Yeah," and he looked at me and he was like, "Well, get the fuck on." And and in that moment on the prison yard, I'm like, "Okay, there's one path. Like he's giving you the keys to leave. The other part is like he just talked to you like you were a, a, a little punk." And in my mind, he's giving you an opportunity, dude. You know him. And so I, I, in my mind, I just walked off. And, and I struggled because I'm thinking, okay, what's going to happen next is uh, the gang is going to come hit me. Like, it's going to be a fight. It's going to, at a minimum, it's going to be a fight. It's probably going to be worse than that. And so I worried that whole time at the yard for something to happen. Nothing happened. I came back out that night because I, I didn't want to be running from what could happen. And uh, I remember Sam coming up to me that night, and he just told me, he said, ain't nobody going to do nothing to you. He said, but don't mess up. Don't mess up because you're going to get me pulled into it, and then that's going to that's gonna be a whole other thing. So do what you want to do because uh, if you can go home, like a lot of us can go home. And he had like this belief in me. like So long story short, um, and I want to come back to Sam for a minute because he, he has a, a really unique uh, ending uh, or beginning. Uh, and so, long story short on me, a uh, total of 24 years inside, I walked out with a bachelor's degree, uh, multiple associate's degrees and some trades and some trainings and wanted to figure out how to change the system. And so, I came home January 12, 2012. Uh, 
as I reflect back, one of the things that I really find interesting is every time I went to the board, because I was like the, the young homie that started going to school, started trying to get his life together. And when I would go to the board, the other guys would look at me like, if you're not going home, we're not going home. It's like, you're doing everything right, and, and, and we're letting you do everything right. And like, they're still not letting you out. And I would almost feel like I had let them down. I had let my family down. I let these guys on the yard down. And I would just go back to work. Uh, and when I say go back to work, meaning uh, continue to work on myself, continue to take uh, rehabilitative programs, trying to figure out what didn't I do right to be found suitable to go home from uh, prison. Um, and so when that time finally came, I promised everybody that was on the yard that I knew, I said, I'm going to figure out a way to change this system and help people come home. Uh, and I've kept that word uh, to this date. But want to just just for a minute go back to Sam. So I, I got to go back to Sam because Sam... Uh, <clears throat> I want to give you two stories of Sam. Uh, we're walking down this hallway, and uh, I'm about to go into the chapel. I'm, I'm in the midst of my change. And I was like, hey, homie, go in the chapel with me. And he's like, man, look, if I go in there, I spontaneously combust. <laughs> <laughs> and, and I look at him, and he goes to the yard, I go to the chapel. Uh, I'm going to tell you his nickname, too, back then. Uh, another time we're walking down the hallway, I'm like, man, come on in here, man. I'm telling you, this is you, check it out. And he said, look, me and God got to understand that he don't mess with me, I don't mess with him. And he went to the yard, I went to the chapel. Um, I get a Bible uh, from my mom. And, I, and she had, she, she had uh, sent me, a, I had an African-American study Bible, which you can only keep one Bible. And so I took the other Bible and I gave it to Sam. He was like, you know I'm not going to read this. And I was like, but I'm giving it to you. He was like, I'm going to keep it, but you know I'm not going to read it. He sticks it in his footlocker. Now, I get out. Everything that I've said to you, like this is just, if Sam was sitting here, he'd be nodding his head. And so uh, four years later after I get out, he calls me and uh, I'm like, what's up, homie? You all right? He was like, yeah, I'm good. I'm at peace, man. I'm like, huh? He said, if God never lets me out of here, I'm good with that. And I'm like, he done lost it. And I'm like, what made you say that? He said, uh, the last few months, last six or seven months, I've been going to church. I'm like, he playing a role. He, he, nah, this ain't, no, no. Sam's nickname back in the day was El Diablo. <laughs> so, so it's the opposite. Like, yeah, and I'm like, in my mind, I'm like, he's playing a role. So he gets found suitable for parole, and I'm like, he's playing a role. He just played the boy. Like, because the guy that I knew, like, I didn't think he could change. He comes home, and uh, he comes back to L.A., and he tells me, he was like, can't stay in the hood, got to go back up north. And gives me all the reasons why. And, and, and they're good reasons. So he goes back up north. And so I'm just going to jump to to where he's at today. He's a deacon in his church. He mentors kids. This guy, uh, one of the kids he mentored had been murdered. And like on the phone, like he just breaks down, like, how do I keep doing this? And it's his faith that keeps him doing this. Uh, he sends me a video one day. I open the video up. And he's given a like he he's 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 given a sermon, and I'm like, that's pretty cool. And he was like, no, that's not the cool part. The Bible I'm using is the one that you gave me years ago. And I'm like, wow. So all I can tell you is this: like, professionally, people may not know uh, my deep belief in God, my faith. But if God can change Sam, God can change anything or anyone. That's powerful, man. And look. Yeah, I was about to. I joke a lot, but I'm not gonna joke to ruin the situation. Yeah. But I was gonna say, if God could change El Diablo. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. 
Um, man, I have so many questions. Um, you know, up until the inception of this podcast, there's things that I had seen that I'd never spoke about, spoken about. And there's multiple reasons. One is the beyond a statute of limitations. Like there's issues with some of my friends or families from the past. But the other reason is I couldn't. It was just uh, heavy, heavy to think about. And how did you, or how do you, well, let me first explain myself. Um, I've seen a, um, can you hear well? Yeah, okay, I yeah, scratch. I've seen a lot of um, violence. And the thing with me is I wasn't raised in a violent community. I kind of ended up there after my father left, you know, as a kid. I end up in violence at the age of nine or 10, 10, and then I was put in the hood. Before that, I was, I lived in Italy, you know, or, you know, lived a regular life. So culture shock, but then I became a product of my environment. And um, one thing that stuck with me even till this day is the things that I've seen. And, and I've talked to um, some of my friends, I've been in touch over the years, and some of them are struggling uh, mentally. Even they've become Christians and they believe in God. They're struggling mentally with things they've seen, like war veterans, you know? How do you uh, navigate that? Like, does it? are you just, you know, still a gangster mentally in that area where you could just hold it down and you're okay? Or did you have to plead with God, like, God, you know, heal me from this? Because for me, I, I, I've, like I've told people, and I'm not saying in the bragging way, of the Ten Commandments, I've broken them all or at least tried to. I think actually I broke them all except the murder one, but I tried. And I'm fortunate by the grace of God that the person, you know, they've been hospitalized, but they didn't, um, they didn't pass on. And I, and I don't even know how I could, like, I feel like I'm a different, you know, when you, know, when you come to Jesus, your, your perspective starts shifting, at least mine, right? The perspective. And then I kind of look back at that and I'm like, oh, like, it's a part of me, but it's not a part of me. You know what I'm saying? Like, I, it even used to scare me, like, the thought of even being able to go that dark, you know? Like, I think, Absolutely. like, yeah, Absolutely. like, man, I can't believe I could go there. And and there's a there's a psychologist, I mentioned him a few times on the podcast, a guy named Jordan Peterson. He points out that, um, I listen to him a lot. Have you heard of Jordan Peterson? No, I haven't. He's, he's a clinical psychologist uh, out of Ontario, Canada, but he's in the United States now. He studied human behavior for over 20 years, like uh, followed people through their lives, um, clinical trials, and just all kinds of stuff. And he's explaining, he calls it uh, malevolence, where uh, the ability to inflict violence on another person. And he goes, he said, he's, he points out, because there's people in the world right now, especially in America, that go, I would never do that. You know, um, I don't have the, I don't have the, it's not in me. And he points out that, uh, Jordan Peterson points out that, Everyone has that ability. Mm -hmm. He goes, let me tell you something. You take an upper middle class white woman, put her in a house, right? She's, she grew up upper middle class, never had to deal with street violence, nothing, right? Um, she, and she's a glass half full personality type positive. Put a gun in her house and let someone break in and try to hurt her kids. She said she will kill them and sleep well that night. So it's in you. And he goes, it's very important to acknowledge that part of you so that you don't end up one of those people that go, I don't, I can't believe what I just did. And they're shocked at their behavior. So once you identify and acknowledge it, you're actually, it's easier to control or you know what it is or 
know not to go there. But when you live in denial and lie to yourself, you can't. But so telling you that to tell you, I mean, I'm saying that to lead to my question. How do you navigate that? Because even even in the, I'll just call it street life for me. I'll just speak for myself because I don't, you know, I can't speak for your life. But even just fighting all the damn time, you know, like out in the streets <laughs> fighting. And then I, I graduated from a continuation school, barely. Um, just fighting at school, just fighting everywhere. And that transition to not being that person anymore, for me, it was very hard. There was a lot of habits I had. I remember going to the store. Um, I'm not trying to glorify gangs or anything, but when I first started going to church, God got a hold of me when I was trying to, I was chasing women. And there's this woman I liked, and she went to church. And so to get with her, I had to go to church. So I ended up in there. They gave a sermon about, you have a father in heaven. That's something I crave, is having a father figure drew me in and then, you know, the rest is history. But she was like, we got to get you some church clothes. You can't come here like this. So I'm going to church. I'm at Ross Dress for Less, right? Looking church clothes, like amazing clothes, right? She's like, I don't want anything with red in it. You know, like I had still had, I had this, it was in me so deep, like it didn't even make sense, you know? So how did you navigate that, that transition? Or did you experience that at all? So I, here's another thing that I've learned. Um, Everything you need to get where you're going or where God is sending you, he's going to put in your path. So I'm big on therapy, but I'm big on therapy because of what happened to me while I was in prison. I got to uh, meet this uh, psychologist named Dr. D'Antoni. Uh, I think she's like maybe four foot two. And I would tell her, like, she's the biggest bully I ever met. Like she would like, she was relentless in, in, in helping you understand and give you the tools that you need to address uh, the things that you've been through. I met her through this program called uh, the Victims Offenders Education Group. Um, and then from that, I was able to do a pilot program, which, with her, which was uh, one-on-one therapy. I think it was about six months. It may have been longer. It seemed like it was every day because she was like, <laughs> she, she would help you explore all of your, like we look at now childhood trauma, ACEs, uh, adverse childhood experiences. Um, and we understand how they impact children, uh, whether they grew up in, in uh, suburbia and there's uh, uh, trauma in the home or you're in South LA and there's trauma in the home and in the community and in the school. And so that therapy and, and receiving those tools helped me level up, as I call it. Um, and then when I came home, I understood how easy it was for me to transition from incarceration uh, to society. It wasn't, it, it was God given, but in a different way. I would have never met, we had 35 prisons. Imagine this, I'm walking down the hallway and I happen to meet this psychologist that recruits me to go into a, a program. Right? And then I stay with the program even though I felt like I hated it sometimes. Yeah. But something just said that it was, it, it was, I need to go down this path to understand why I made the choice I made. Like, how do I heal myself? I didn't know how to heal myself. Uh, not, not the emotional and mental scars that I had. Uh, the physical scars could heal. I've been shot. Uh, doesn't bother me. I, I tore my uh, Achilles tendon uh, uh, while inside. Doesn't bother me. But those deep psychological wounds don't heal unless you know how to. And so uh, going through that therapy helped me with so many tools. And then coming home, uh, when I started re-experiencing things, uh, the, the, the death of my uh, daughter's mother, um, 2014, uh, uh, my, my stepdaughter in 2018 passed away. My wife had a brain tumor and uh, was in eight-hour surgery, and I, I, I just 
the pressure from that. Uh, even today, my mom is uh, uh, has an incurable uh, 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 cancer right now. Uh, then running an organization that's the size of ARC, it's a lot of pressure. I go to therapy. Uh, I have tools to use. Um, is it easy? No, it's not easy. But then what I tell uh, most people that are incarcerated is like, when you come home, life is going to be tough. Uh, professionally, I excel. Interpersonally, I excel. But there's still pain. Like, life, like how do you know how beautiful life is if you don't experience pain? Yeah. Uh, how do you know how, how good the sunlight feels on your skin if you're not in the cold rain? And so that's part of life. It's like dips and it's like hilltops and valleys. Um, and knowing that it's okay for you to be sad sometimes when you lose someone you love. Uh, when, you, when someone makes you angry, that, it's a natural secondary emotion. And all of these are things that I learned while I was inside. But continue to apply them and to seek therapy uh, upon my release. And they're tools. They're just... Understand, like, okay, my solution when I got angry before all of this was I stab you, I shoot you, I beat you up. Like, those are real quick solutions, but those aren't the right ones. Yeah. Like, we all experience anger. How do you deal with it? And so if you make me angry, I, I have options. I can walk away. I can lean into conflict and try to get you not to make me angry and explain to you what you're doing. I just have options and tools and understand how to navigate those things. If you don't have those, eventually the trauma that you've experienced will emerge. Uh, and so uh, I met this little bitty tiny lady inside of a prison, one of 35 with over 100, I think it was 170,000 people in prison at that time. What are the odds? It's not odds, it's God. Yeah. And so uh, even now, one of the bills that we're <clears throat> running, uh, uh, we ran this past year was a mental health bill for people that are incarcerated to be able to receive one-on-one -on -one therapy. Uh, it was shelved in appropriations. We're going to bring it back this year again because uh, post-traumatic stress disorder, uh, uh, PTSD, like these are real things. When you see violence in your community, when you experience it in your home, uh, for a kid, imagine this, a kid seeing his friend murdered, a bullet piercing the skin of someone. Like those are not normal things that we're meant to as children to, to view. And so when you go through that trauma, you have to be able to heal yourself. And those are things that you just don't learn on your own. It's the same as like math. You don't just learn math all of a sudden. You're a mathematician. You have to learn. You have to have someone that can facilitate and instruct you on the tools that you need to be able to do those things. <laughs> yeah. Well, <laughs> Sorry. All good. All good, brother. It's all good. That's that's the part of it that uh here here let me share this with you too. Um we were having this conversation, uh I was just in Louisiana and uh, Houston at, at these two big conferences, and uh, we discussed trauma and vulnerability. In prison, when I would facilitate certain groups, I, I'd be the first to make myself vulnerable. Because uh, after all of that therapy, one of the things that I learned was 
being vulnerable actually is a position of strength. That's one of your natural emotions. How do you get people to trust you? If, they, if you can't show your real self, how do people trust you? And so uh, I've always practiced that. And inside, like, it came natural to me. Even out here, like, uh, life is hard, man. But it's, it, it's also uh, uh, truly beautiful. And, and those are the, the times, like, I'm, I'm 54 now. And so... Uh, I, I, uh, my mom is 84. My dad passed when he was 79. So I always say, okay, I got about 30 more years to go. <laughs> you calculate uh, like I do. <laughs> <laughs> and, so, and so, like, I, I have, I, like, I'm, I'm gonna experience pain. Yeah. Uh, loss, all kind of different things. Uh, but I'm not gonna sit in it because it's not meant for me to, to, to sit in. But I'm gonna embrace it and, and uh, help others learn how to navigate this and make our communities and our, and our, and our. Uh, uh, places where we live safer and better. Yeah, that's one thing I'm trying to um, to push is uh, to deal with those traumas because, you know, like seeing, like when you were talking, it just kind of triggered me. I'm sorry. All good, all good. No need for apologies, brother. But um, like seeing stuff. It's not, that's the reality. If you think, think about it this way. Uh, my grandson li lives with me. Uh, he's four right now. Uh, uh, and this little kid, uh, all he's experienced is good. He's he's super sheltered. And I remember he went in the closet. The closet can lock from the inside, and it's dark. And he went there and locked himself in, and he's banging on the door, and he's scared to death. And we get him out the closet, and, like, he's crying. Yeah. And this is just, like, that's light, super lightweight. He would never, he, he won't go in that closet now. Yeah. He won't, like... Because it's a trauma that he's experiencing now, he's afraid of it. At four years old, like, like I'm looking, he'll get it. He'll he'll forget about that one day, and he'll go in that closet and grab a jacket like it's no thing <laughs> no. one day. Yeah. But right now, that was a traumatic experience for him, and and and, and he doesn't know how to navigate it at four years old. So when he wants yeah. something out the closet, he asks his papu or his Gigi to, to or his mom like get my jacket out the closet. Uh, and, yeah, and what yeah. he's telling you is like. I don't know how to deal with this because he, he experienced something. And when we see things in our community, like, we need to be able to heal. Uh, we need less, less violence, more love and compassion in our communities. But even when we don't have those things, we still need to be able to make sure that the ability to heal is there. Yeah, I think that, um, like, before, like, if I got triggered, like I got triggered now, it's, I would have, like, um, a different reaction I'd either push it down, I could feel it bubbling up. I'm like, hey, I gotta go to the restroom real quick, walk off, maybe have a little anxiety or whatever. But I did a therapy called EMDR, which I talk about a lot. Have you heard of EMDR? I've heard of it. Yeah. It's highly effective. Like there are eight, it works, I think the effective rate, um, I think it's 80, 85%. And it's um designed like according to um, you know, my I don't believe you live by a diagnosis, but you know, they I was told that I have a from the violence I've seen, it's it's a complex, um, wait, complex trauma with PTSD. It's just you know when you're just seeing stuff daily, just whatever. And so now when it hits, it just makes me real sad. It's like mm -hmm. a, I guess that's the normal reaction you're supposed to have. Yeah. Before it, it would be like say like my best friend he was killed. He got you know shot in the head. Um, it was anger. And you know we're we're young. There's no therapy in the in the hood, so you're just, you know, 
you kind of go to your friends and have like an anger fest or that night, or you might go home or go to your girl's house and you just sit there and you don't process it properly. So all that stuff kind of gets packed in there. But when you were talking, it just kind of hit at home when you were saying that, kind of seeing things. And like you, very similar. There's a there's a doctor that helped me out. Her name's Dr. Uh, Vaved, uh, which is an interesting name. Her, her, her name is a mixture of her parents. Her mom's name's Vivian. Her dad's name's Edward. So they named her Vaved. <laughs> it's a combination. But Vaved Gonzalez, and she's in um, San Juan Capistrano, Orange County. And like you said, God will put the right person in your house. And I'm not... Like I'm a short person, I'm five six, and she, and I could probably dunk on her if you lowered a basket. But she's like <laughs> probably like four, four, four nothing, and um, she actually put me through some EMDR. And I'd recommend you know just stone it out there. I'd recommend um, look into it if you're going to put it like you're putting that mental health bill together, because what it does is, um, did you have, when you talk to the therapist, did they explain to you how trauma sits into the. Um, what makes it stay in our mind so rough or so hard? Have you ever explored that? And generational trauma, uh, especially uh, 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 generational trauma for uh, groups like African-Americans. So definitely. Yeah. Okay. So, um, well, to kind of explain how EMDR works, it's interesting generational trauma. I was actually talking to, I think I was talking to my sister. I talk to my sister all the time, but because I have generational trauma, there's violence. My grandmother was murdered, you know, and my, my, my uncle, he was also shot too, all murdered. And so, um, but going back to EMDR, what it does is they hook you up to this machine and it stimulates the uh, the uh, left and right hemispheres of your brain. And you don't even talk. And you just kind of hold on to them. I mean, just during that machine. And the therapist walks you through um, in detail the major traumas. They kind of prioritize which ones are the most, the biggest. And you relive it right there on the spot. And it's intense. You think about the smells, the what things look like, how you felt, and you feel a punch through it at a certain point. First, it hits you full on, and then you have a moment where you have peace. So if it happened, say, 30 years ago, it feels like 30 years ago. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. And so I'd, I'd recommend it. And they feel that the, the, I mean, the, um, the success rate of it would be even higher if people were more... Um, open when they go to therapy because you know some people have those walls and they don't fully go there but if you fully go in or medium the the success rate of healing is like i think it's in the upper 80s and we're talking one session you go like say if you've seen a bad car accident and traumatized you you could have eaten there for that one thing that one session will get it it's it's that fast you don't have to keep talking about it and go you know go home and be sad for the rest of the day until your next appointment so it works pretty fast but sorry, I didn't mean to get off on a tangent about that. I just kind of had to refocus my brain and get it off of the uh, all good, all off good. the bad stuff. But um, so, sorry. So when you were initially incarcerated, did was the sentence life? It was fifteen years to life. So life back then, life meant life. Like there was even a um, so you have life without the possibility of parole, which means you can never be uh, paroled. Uh-huh. And then you had life with the possibility. So 15 years to life uh, was considered life with the possibility. But there was at one time uh, when life with the possibility was considered, quote, unquote, uh, de facto life without. Because uh, California was released in less than one-tenth of 1% of people sentenced to life with uh, the possibility of parole. Wow. So when you get that type of sentence like that, um. Can you walk us walk walk through what what goes through your mind as a young 
would you consider yourself a boy at that point? I, I do that age, right? Like you're still, you don't, your brain, our brains aren't developed till we're 25. So right. we're still, right. so when you're going in at that age, does it, does the weight of it hit you? Or are you just like. I had gotten to a point where I, I think I had so many levels of trauma. I was just like, this is the next episode. Um, I had been shot. I remember, I was thinking about this this morning when I was driving to work. I had a, in junior high school, I had a, a, a vice principal named Mr. Stewart, African-American, and a principal named Mr. Miller, a Caucasian. I had gotten into a, a, a fight on the field, uh, the football field. and It, it was a gang fight. Mm -hmm. And I remember them both, uh, while I stood there in handcuffs, saying, he's not going to even make it to 18. Uh, and and uh, Stewart said I wouldn't make it to 18, and Miller said he might not make it past this year. And so going to prison, like, uh, at that age and what I had been through, um, it saddened me, but it didn't It didn't really register. It was kind of like, okay, this is, like, where my life is going to be. Uh, it, it was a little scary at first because um, you didn't know what to expect. Um, but one of the things that was always said in the gang module, so when, you, when you're involved with gangs, too, at that time in L.A., you would go to a gang module. Uh, so so Bloods went to a gang module, Crips went to a gang module. And uh, one was 4,300, one was 4,800. And it was always said that if you could survive the gang modules of uh, L.A. County in the 80s, you could, you could survive any prison. And so that's how I went into prison. Like, that was my attitude um, coming out of this gang module. All of 100 and maybe 35 pounds, I thought I was tough. Uh, and just, like, lived through it. Um, that's how, how I envisioned it. But my reality was I had somebody looking over me all the time. God, like, I walked out of there with a sound mind, Wow. The worst injury that I had was a torn Achilles from playing basketball, uh, a post-secondary uh, education and a desire to change. And, and now here I sit. If that's not God, then I don't know what is. Yeah. I mean, you're doing better than me, at least psychologically. <laughs> psychologically. <laughs> I'm carrying some scars, man. But uh, God's trust. healed me. God's yeah, healed me. Absolutely. Yeah. So, wow, that is amazing that you could, that all that you've been through and you're just so strong. You know, that's, I, that's, I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm astounded. I'm amazed by that. It's, um, you know, cause I have some of my gang friends or f whatever, a lot of them are family, by the way, you know, family, but, um, some of them actually kind of became recluse, you know, they just turned gotta, inward. You, yeah. You, turned inward and just don't want to want to, they don't even interact with society. They just, and I, I don't know if it's from the pain or the, you know, the, the, that's the way they're dealing with everything or whatever. Um, but it's a guy, and I got to introduce you to him. Um, his name is David Anthony Johnson. Um, he's, a, he's a pastor, but his background was he was a correction officer for 10 years. And he started doing Bible studies. Um, he was out there in Adelanto. And um, there was actually a few prisons in Adelanto, I think, if I remember correctly. And uh, he used to do... Um, uh, started doing Bible studies or whatever with, with, with some of the inmates there. And he actually got in trouble with the, um, is it called the CDC, California yeah. Department of Corrections? Yeah, correct. He got in trouble for doing that. And he ended up, he's in, I think he, uh, I don't know if it's resolved yet, it turned to a wrongful termination lawsuit. Like, it's like they want the, um, I, I know disrespect, I disrespect this word all the time, recidivism? Is that, recidivism, you got Okay, it right. I said it right. Man, do you know how many times I've messed up? It's like they want the recidivism. 
Like it's a, it's a, it's like the, it's like the industrial war machine. There's like a, would you agree? Do you think that exists? Because I'm ignorant on that. The recidivism. Do you think the state wants that for the sake of creating jobs? And at one time, I would say that would true. Uh, from what I'm seeing now, as a person, so now, based on both my experience of being inside a quarter of a century and seeing what recidivism looked like from that end, and then coming home, uh, watching different leadership, secretaries of corrections, different governors. Uh, different leadership for the California Correctional Peace Officers Association, I would say I don't think they want recidivism. They want safer communities. And I think the leadership starting from, I th- I, I have to give the, the credit to Governor Brown. He's, when he came in office, he said something to the effect that he wanted to fix the system that he had messed up. I'm paraphrasing that, but uh, he picked the right secretaries of corrections. He uh, picked the right wardens because wardens are also selected by uh, governors. Um, and you see a transformation, and, and the current governor, Governor, uh, governor uh, Newsom, has continued down that, that path of making sure that there are rehabilitative programs inside, and pro- parole officers, for the most part, see themselves as being successful, and this is my opinion from what I see in doing this work all day. When they can get a person off parole and they're working full-time and they have their own place to say, stay, Correctional uh, probation officer, parole officers see themselves as being part of that success, and so that that's a change though. That hasn't always been the way, but right now uh, you have those elements. Uh, is it is it a hundred percent? No, uh, you still have some what I call the old guard that uh, think people that are incarcerated are less than uh, want you to come back. Uh, they think your job security. That's old guard. Uh, the new guard. Uh, as I would call it. Uh, and and uh, for anybody that's listening from corrections, I don't mean that as a disrespectful term. <laughs> the, the, the new belief is like we can do better. We can help people go home better than how they came into the system. And there's an effort. Like I've, I've, I've been in prisons where uh, you have wardens and correctional staff trying to do the best that they can uh, at different places. And again, it's not 100%, but I've seen... Uh, some amazing leadership that's transforming this system. Uh, and I think part of what drives it is the community that's pushing for better, more programs, more college programs, more treatment, uh, and true pathways for when people are released from incarceration. So, um, But in the past, more concisely to your question, absolutely. Recidivism was... Uh, key to keeping the, the system so full. Uh, the system is now at about 93,000 people inside. That's still too many. Uh, but we've, we're closing prisons. In the, the, oh, good. The popular, good. Yeah, so, so I think we've closed now four prisons. Uh, and when I say we, I'm talking about the state of California. All of me, you, every advocate that's in the state, uh, even uh, every elected official that has pushed for rehabilitative programming. Um, and over a half of a century, 50 years, 50 plus years, we've never closed a prison. And we've closed four and there are two more slated to be closed. Good. That's good to hear. Yeah, because, you know, I was in high school in the 90s and I have friends that uh, went to juvenile hall and from, you know, just, we were doing stupid stuff, you know, like stealing or, you know, stealing a car stereo, bicycle, going to juvenile hall and never getting out. Like they went from juvenile hall to CYA. Then CYA, they got in trouble, then end up in prison. Like it just turned into 
a big mess and the initial crime was maybe stealing a bicycle and they end up doing ungodly amount of years in the end. And, um, but at the time I, you know, I think the black community were, 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 were ignorant of what was going on. You know what I'm saying? And, and you're sending off so many things in my mind, but it, we're ignorant of what's going on. But the problem is also a solution. I have a friend of mine, we were having a conversation and he's a white dude, but he's very enlightened with the plight of minorities. Mm-hmm. And um, he was even asking me, he goes, look, man, let's say we gave reparations, like the country agreed, you know, there's definitely the money there and gave reparations to black people for slavery. And we gave everyone a million, two million dollars or whatever. How do you fix the generational trauma? You know, you know, how do you, how, how would you address that? Or like you guys, your organization, the anti-recidivism coalition, how, how do you guys foresee? Cause the, I think the, the, the kids going in the prison is, is like a, is the um, symptom of the problem, right? Is that a correct way of saying it? Yeah. It's, it's, it's what occurs as a result of just everything that's happening in the, I'd say it, not just black, but we just focus on black, on the black household. How do you foresee, or do you see a way like we need to do this, then this, like the steps to help trying to mitigate the problem because, you know, closing the prisons are good and everything. But I, I believe I told my friend, I think we need some therapy in the, in, in the stigma. And that's one of the thing about this podcast is to remove the stigma from mental health, to make it right. a area where we can openly talk about it. And there's not a shame, you know, it's not viewed as you're weak or you're not a man or whatever, and it's okay to cry. I'm pretty sure you grew up in the air, right? It's bad to cry. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah so he's kind of big boys don't cry. Yeah, so dry it up. Yeah. You'll you'll pour out for the friend, but you yeah. you can't emotionally. Yeah. So how do you foresee, like, envision, like, if you had a magic wand or you could do something to change, how, or or you can actually implement things? What do you? How do you see that changing? Do you see a solution or a one that doesn't require? I mean, do you see a solution? It just seems very complex. It it is complex, but sometimes the solutions are simple. Um, so, so first, if if I were to say, like, if, if reparations were true, let me just say this, and they say they were going to give every household $2 million, I would make it a requirement that you have, have to first take therapy. Oh, yeah. You have to take some, <laughs> and then And then the reward is you're, getting, you're going to get this. I, I, would, I would actually say. Uh, That's actually smart. Therapy and financial literacy, just to make sure you don't just blow your $2 million bucks Because that, that, that seed, but like our middle, what, what, what they call a. Uh, 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 I'm, I'm losing the word. Um, uh, we created our, our middle wealth in this country through government uh, in the 50s where you had uh, uh, people came home from uh, Second World War. They were able to get the veterans benefits. Uh, you, you had training and school and all these things were paid for. So uh, that that middle wealth, you could purchase a home and then you're creating generational wealth from, by owning that property. And so we were locked out of that. Yeah. Like if, and, and My for, grandfather was locked out of that. Exactly. Yeah. And, so, and so great book to read if you really want to understand all of these different dynamics is uh, When Affirmative Action Was White. There's a book called When Affirmative Action Was White. Really? Okay. Read that book and you'll understand how the opportunities that were given to our citizens in this country that, that were, were, were Caucasian were not given to people of color. And that's how we began to create the middle class and also wealth. And they were able to build on that, that wealth. Uh, now, if, so, so without going too far into that, but that's what I would say. I would say first you have to take 
therapy, and you have to have financial literacy. And we get the $2 million for reparation or a million dollars. Um, for, for wine, the solutions. Um, that book that I mentioned talks about redlining. Redlining was where basically <clears throat> African-Americans or people of color were not allowed to live in certain areas like, say, Malibu or, or Beverly Hills. You couldn't live there. You had to go to places like East L.A., Compton, or like, like places like that. Like even Compton at one time, black people couldn't live there. Uh, so, you know so let me correct that. I looked that up online because I didn't believe that. And yes, it's true. Exactly. It used to be like an a all-white all area. White, exactly. And so redlining put black people in certain places or people of color in certain places where it was under-resourced. If you were to lay a map over where people that go to prison come from, you'll find them in those same pockets a lot. The, the vast majority are coming out of East L.A., Boyle Heights, South L.A., or South Central. Uh, and they're, they're filling our prisons up. And that's, that's, that's just the L.A. County areas, Watts and stuff like that. If you go to places like up, up in the Bay Area, you're going to find those same clusters and stuff. And those are areas that at one time were redlined where they want to push blacks into and they're under-resourced. If a kid walks out of his house right now today, and he sees trash, and he goes to a school that's under-resourced, and the books are two or three years ago, and the teachers aren't motivated or paid well to really take care of and motivate our kids, what do you think that kid is going to... We're going to still, like, we're going to still ride, can, can potentially rise above that, but most of these kids, are, what's going to happen? Where, where are they going to go? You lose hope. They, you lose hope. And so, uh, and, and then if your parents have lost hope, and they don't know how to be parents, like, and, and these things, like, just go all the way back. Let's, let's stop. Let me pause for a minute here and let me go all the way back. Imagine when the people that were enslaved were released. You had nothing. You had some that had some trade, some could read. They, they were limited, but literally you're free. Now go, go compete. Think about it. You're barefooted. You got rags that you're wearing. Like, Let me add something to that. And there were no... Um, uh, racial discrimination laws to protect you. So the odds of getting a job were just zero. And and, and then you go through this, and like I could go through the whole litany from uh, Emancipation Proclamation to Black Codes to Jim Crow, like, and yet we still rise. And so right now, when we look at what would my magic wand be, my magic wand would be this, uh, and maybe the president will hear about this, uh, I don't know. What if we put the billions and trillions of dollars, the same amount that we put in the wars into these communities and set up paid training for science, paid training for arts, paid training for sports, whatever it is this young kid wants. For parents that don't have the money to be able to have uh, uh, their kids taken care of while they go work three jobs just to keep a, a roof over there, like cost damn near a million dollars, excuse me, to buy a house in, in, in South Central LA. <laughs> a million bucks. Like, how do you, like, so, so when we asked us, like, if we were to set it up where I could put you into a career, and, and I have to segue into this, we've had huge success as an organization at the Anti-Recidivism Coalition where people come home from prison and we created a pre-apprenticeship program. We pay you minimum wage to focus just on getting into the apprenticeship and wanted to build in trades, electrician, operating engineer, pipe fitter. Like these are trades that, that you'll, you can earn six figures once you, you journey out. We put over 300 people into those, those, those apprenticeship programs that wow. were incarcerated. Wow. 
Some have journeyed out making $150,000, $160,000 a year, have bought homes or, or putting away college uh, money for their kids. Uh, we created a pathway for people that are coming home from prison to be firefighters. Again, another career, a, a, a very like a career that that to me, firefighters are like superheroes that don't have special uh, powers, but just the, the courage and the heart to save people. Uh, putting people into the Hollywood unions, and we're paying you to do these trainings so that you never go back to prison. Yeah. The rate of return on the investments in these individuals is in the tens of millions of dollars meaning we're doing a multiple things. One, we're reducing the recidivism rate of people going back to prison. That's one. Two, we're decreasing the cost of taxpayer money going into the prison base because people aren't going back in. So fiscally, we're, we're winning. Three, we're enhancing public safety. Because if you think about it, what do kids do? Who do they mimic? The people around the neighborhood. So if you see this guy coming home with his hard hat and he's driving this clean Lexus, as the kids say, they whip. Uh, like, <laughs> like, I want what he has. How did you get that? Yeah. He's not selling dope. He's not robbing people. He's not doing anything wrong. He's getting up at 4 o'clock in the morning. He's going to work. He's working a four shift, sometimes double time, sometimes, and he's making plenty good money, as they would say. Yeah. And, and those are just limited areas where, where I'm talking about trades. What if we also did this for the kid that's great in math? And we say, you know what? You can be you can be a mathematician. You can be a college professor. You can be uh, Code, a, a CPA, computer coder. A, a computer coder. How, like in order for you to be able to believe that you can be those things, you have to be able to see those things. Yeah. And so if we put those like I think we I can't remember the the number, but we we spent something odd trillion dollars on the Afghanistan war. What if we put that in these under resourced communities that were once redlined? What would that do to our economy? What if we put that into training programs like Build Back Better is what, what Biden's put in? Applaud that. How about now we start really training people to go into the like I mean on the whole next level and focused on under-resourced communities? And I'm not just because I don't want rural rural people who hear this to think I'm just talking about the inner city. Everybody should have an opportunity for, for this. Yeah. If we invest in the people that are here and give them a light at the end of the road of what I could be, what I could become, where would that take us as a country? Where would that take us in our communities? Like, it's just the investment of people. If you walk out, if you were to walk out and and we were just to a flash of walking out and uh, the worst part of Watts, as they would say, and walking out in the worst part of Beverly Hills, which one would you want to live in? Worst part of Beverly Hills. But watch your mouth what you say about Watts. But that's right? what I'm Just saying. But, but that's I'm what I'm kidding. saying. I'm that's kidding. why I said the worst, worst part of Beverly yeah. Hills, worst part of Watts, or worst yeah. part of South Central, worst part of Beverly Hills. Like when we put those, why is that? Because we go back historically, they were redlined, they were under resourced intentionally. Yes, absolutely. And so how about we intentionally now invest in the people that live in those areas through education, trades, and the arts? It's an investment. When you invest, what happens? You win. You like if you invest a thousand dollars in, in like <clears throat> if you Microsoft when when Michael first saw first starting, you invested a thousand dollars when they first started. You'd be rich today. Yeah, because an investment is meant to grow. Yes. We invest in the people in these communities. What happens as a community, as a country, as a state, as a county? We'd be rich. I agree with you a hundred percent. And but I th I think that there's a 
there's too much pushback for that to happen. That's the problem. I don't, and that's the thing I was wondering how to, I, I wonder how to address because um, before I go into that, I just got to point this out. My sister works for Caltrans and she's actually a, we're like, we came out of a horrible situation and I wasn't meant to go to college. It's a fluke. It's a long story, but she actually went on and became an engineer. She actually designs the freeways, but she specializes in um, concrete, those overpasses or the direction. Like the one that caught on fire? Oh, Audrey. Uh, no, no. But did it catch no, on fire? Oh, no. Someone no. set it on fire. Somebody set it on yeah, fire. No, yeah. no, no, no. But yeah. they fixed it, too. It's opened up this morning. Oh, did it? Okay, yeah. yeah. <laughs> My sister's name is Audrey. I was like, oh, Audrey. But no, she's actually down in Sacramento. They come up with special recipes that, pet, that uh, blends that has to do with the temperature, the weather, the water expansion, all that stuff. She does that. But she schooled me on, on when they're developing the freeways in Los Angeles. Have you ever looked into that? No, I Oh man, like when they developed the freeways, like say the 405 or the 101, no wait, the 405, no, and the 91, they intent, like there was areas they could have built in, but they decided if you notice like certain sides of certain freeways are wealthy and the other sides mm-hmm. are not, they, it's almost like building a railroad track. They intentionally put them through black neighborhoods. You could look this up historically and they uh, like, and the school districts on this side gets all the money on the good side and this side, who cares? Mm-hmm. And so you even had, you know, call it what it is, you had racism in the uh, development of the freeway system through Southern California. And even like if you were get a chance to look up Dodger Stadium, those were homes that were there. Mm-hmm. You, have you read about that? There was, I, I yeah. Believe, yeah. And they pushed them all out. Um, but which leads to my second point about what you're saying that there's, I think there's a lot of pushback because I've, you know, self-educated my, uh, self-educated on, I took up one black history class in college for a year, African-American history class. But the rest of it, I kind of learned on my own. And I've noticed that even when our country was like, say, in the Great Depression or things like that, you had black communities make their own banks, build everything, you know, their own like economic bubbles, but then someone would go destroy it. Mm -hmm. So it seems like there's a, if we try to do that again, not even, you know, include Hispanics or just minorities, it seems like someone would sabotage it or, you know, in the powers to not let it happen because we have all the elements that seems like in place to effectively do what needs to be done. You know, you can't argue there's no money anymore. They'll argue there's no money. Then Ukraine's getting attacked. Okay, let's go ahead and send a trillion over there. Where'd that trillion come from? You know, like magic, they could, like you said, make or quote Tupac, they got money for wars, but can't feed the poor. Mm-hmm. That I think if they decide to do that, it seems like there's politicians that would stop it. You know what I'm saying? Like, I don't mean to put you in the because I know you're head of a big organization. I want you to have try to corner you into saying something or agreeing no, to something I, that would get you. But that's what I think. I think it's too hard. Um, and not too hard. There's a lot of people that don't want minorities successful because there's no excuse at this point of not helping. So there's this book called, I think it's called Zero Sum. Uh, and most people operate on a zero sum assumption, meaning if the federal government gives a dollar to under-resourced communities is going to come out of the pockets of a resource community. And that's, that's where they're wrong. If we, if we were to say this table, okay, so you have your eyeglass case, and I got my phone on top of this table. If me and you pick this table up and lift it up, where's the phone and the eyeglass case going to be? It's going to be on top of the table, right? Yes. So if the table is the least of us, what is the eyeglass case and, and the phone? It's going to go up to with the it's table. It's going to go up too. So, so the the rich will continue to get richer, but we're also raising the least of us 
It's not going to take anything away because if you think about it, what's going to happen? Instead of you having to pay for any type of social programs, I'll be paying for it with you because I'll be uh, contributing. Contributing. I'll be paying into the tax base. Now, now what if 100% of us were able to turn uh, pay into the tax base in a meaningful way, meaning I'm, I'm making a living wage, enough to be able to pay for my rent or mortgage, car, school, everything that I need? Yeah. Imagine how that would transform our schools. Mm-hmm. Like the transformation would be huge and it would only make Beverly Hills would be better than Beverly Hills. But it would take these under-resourced communities and put them in Beverly Hills status where they're at now. It like you But but don't you think there'd be people that would uh not you. Not we don't want any we don't want any we don't want any uh, chocolate people doing that well. So we're just good idea, but not with you. I think they're they're more in the minority. But the other part is that I don't think we have um, we've taken the time to get to know each other. And what I mean by that is this: uh, I sought across a guy named Trey. Uh, I was on the sentencing, a uh, long-term sentencing commission, uh, a year or so ago. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I remember Trey saying something to the effect that he didn't believe that um, people that that had committed murder should ever get a second chance. And I sat across from him and I was like, I, you know, I don't, I don't really know you and you don't know me, but if that's true, I wouldn't be able to sit across from you. And I'm hoping that you can see that people can change. After a year period of time, he changed his position. He got to know me. We had in-depth conversations. We talked about re- what redemption looked like. We talked about what accountability looks like. But we had time to have those conversations. And I think for those people that feel that way about people that have a darker skin uh, hue. They just don't know you. They, they haven't taken the time to get to know people. And we haven't, as a country, like really been able to make that happen either. Um, I think we find the majority of us want what's best. Like, if it's a person that's sitting across from me that's Caucasian, they want the same thing that I want. They want a safe place to live. They want the best for their kids and their grandkids. Uh, they want to be able to go on vacation. They want to be able to eat. They want to be able to take care of themselves. I'm no different. I want the exact same thing. I might, I, if you don't want me to be your neighbor, that's fine. I'd like, I can go live somewhere else. I want to be but, your neighbor. I want like, to live by you. <laughs> yeah. But I want like, I want my neighbor, like when I'm out of town, I know my home is safe because my, my neighbors are going to look after it. Just as they know when they're out of town, their home is going to be safe. But in order to know that, you have to know who your neighbors are. You have to know the people that you're around. And I don't think we've done a great job of getting to know each other uh, in, in, in this country. Like the diversity that we have in this country is really what makes this country like stand out the way it is. Like not capitalism, but the diversity, the ideas, the inclusiveness. Um, if you've noticed when you talk about the weakening of a society, I think the divisiveness that we're experiencing now uh, weakens uh, this this great Amer- uh, this this great uh, experiment called democracy. Um, not having belief in each other, like if we just practice one simple thing, every single person practice this empathy. <clears throat> I feel you. I I feel you. Maybe you're 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 a glass half full, and I'm usually am. But I, I just, it's like the more I study the history of our country, the, the harder, it's like I, I have, disp- I, not losing hope. There's always hope. There's hope, you know, through God. But it just seems like the, the way our communities are now, 
it's by design. And this has been going on for generations. You know, like say, um, I just give a few examples. Like even what we learn about ourselves as black people or even about the native Americans, what we learn in school, it's not, it's not accurate. And there's this narrative that makes it that when you don't know who you are and you're learning this and it's minimized, like, like let's, let me, I'm hopping around too much, but let's say black African-Americans. I'm going to stop saying black because it's a long story. I'll explain. I'm going to stop saying black. I'm going to say African-Americans. African-Americans have contributed a lot to this country from inventions, science, like we saw in Hidden Figures, right? That movie or the true life story and things like that. But that stuff is hidden away. Only thing that spotlight is, you know, uh, Tukey from what his name is the guy who was executed for starting the crib get uh, the crips and things like things like that are are what's shown like when a black man gets arrested though you know it's like even if he's innocent you know guilt, uh, innocent until proven guilty and he's innocent they'll go oh yeah we had a history you know he had a domestic violence charge you know 10 years ago and all the dirt comes up you know and i think it's it's like it's a lot like some people i think it's intentional the narrative like even um, my mind's going all over the place. I apologize, but it's like, um, like say our history books, I'll just keep it general. Our history books, our country history books. I think they're written by the daughters of Dixie. I don't know if you heard of them before. I've heard of them. Yeah. And that whole implementation and removal of like the slaves were happy and things were great and things were not bad. Like my family was enslaved in Texas. I, my sister and I did the research, Texas, um, and we're blood related. We even done the DNA. We're blood related because of rape, you know, of slaves. And um, uh, we weren't freed until two years after, you know, they celebrate Juneteenth, a lot of people from mm -hmm. Texas. And um, I had been discussing with my friend, like, they don't even, most Americans don't know, like the, do you know when the last slave plantation was shut down in the United States? Like a real one where slaves were hung from trees, beaten, and, um, you know. I don't know if they're still hanging them, but I know there's still a slave plantation. It's called Angola. Yes. Oh, yeah. But I'm talking. Yeah, <laughs> I'm talking about the United States. Our country. No, Ang Angola State Prison. Oh, there's still there's still a cotton plantation. Like you still, with discipline, you can You're be shocking sent me to right go, now. You're blowing me away. You can be sent to go pick cotton because that amendment. What is it? The 14th, 13th, 13th. I, uh, I did not know that. So, so there's a whole matter of fact uh, for our audience to it. Right now, we have a uh, Assembly Constitutional Amendment. Eight, which is uh, an amendment that will remove the exception clause from California's Constitution. Uh, the exception clause is the clause in the 13th Amendment and in, in pretty much every other state that, that hasn't reversed it, which says uh, slavery is hereby abolished except for duly, if you're duly convicted of a crime. Mm -hmm. like, slavery is a moral stain on this country, so let's just get rid of it. And so when you see ACA... Six become a ballot, uh, ACA eight become a ballot measure. Uh, please vote for it. It will be on our ballots. It's literally a, a, an amendment to our state constitution. Uh, in places like I think Alabama, I know Utah and Colorado have all uh, taken it out of their constitution. Good. And That's then there's, crazy, there's a man. whole movement nationally to get uh, the 13th Amendment uh, 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 fixed, where it's just slavery is abolished, period. To, to, your, to your question, um, You'll be shocked if you don't know. I'm just put it that way. I'm talking slavery from back in the day, slavery, picking cotton, not incarcerated, no crimes, continuous, real plantations, real beatings, it, humans living in chicken coops and all that other stuff. 
I'll tell you. It's 1962. And the way they found out that those, they were like deep in Louisiana. The way they found out those plantations were there is that when Martin Luther King went to go speak in DC, you know, there's no social media. So they sent out, you know, caravans of people going out just announcing they came upon slave plantations. I'm like active slave plantations, people's backs are whipped and they had no idea they were freed. And the family is trying to sue the Supreme Court for reparations because this is into the 60s and the Supreme Court won't hear their case. And it's like, it's, it's stuff like that that makes me think, you, you got, Italians got reparations. They're, I think they're the only whites that were hung with blacks. Remember, they kind of, they were darker skinned when they came. They were looked as black people from Europe. The Italians got reparations. The farm owners, the former slave plantation owners got reparations because they lost their labor force. Everyone got reparations except the slaves. And they would go, well, let's think about it. Then now you got so much of a gap, they go, well, it's kind of a long time ago. I didn't have the slaves. And I think that was by design. And the way our country kind of hides the history of, of our misdeeds towards black people, I think that shows the motives. And I know that you were glass half fully think that the most people want to know about us and be our neighbor, but I don't think they do. Like I'm not trying to get into politics. I'm not a Democrat or Republican. I'm independent, but this is going to sound political, but like, have you seen some of Trump supporters, like how they, they're down with racism. They don't care, you know, and those people exist and they're in the, and they have the pocketbooks to fight, to put them back in office. You know, if Obama, look how pristine Obama was. He's an example of what you have to be in America to, to, to get high, to be exceptional. He had the perfect resume and they looked at, they compared him to Sarah Palin, you know, who um, I think at the time, I forgot, but her wasn't close. And people were like, they're equal or Sarah Palin's more educated to him. This guy was a Rhodes Scholar, attorney. He's checked every box. Very- uh, Harvard graduate too. Yeah, Harvard graduate. Yeah. And like comparing to Sarah Palin, who's going to a community college, no offense to community colleges. But that's how we're, we're looked at, that imbalance like that. You know, like we're, you have to be an exception. And look, if Barack Obama had Trump's baggage of all these lawsuits and criminal cases, then we wouldn't even be considered. So what I would suggest, um, here's the thing. You can try to erase history all you want, but there, there are two, two places where you can't erase it from. You could if you wanted to. Uh, one is in England, the House of Commons. Uh, there's a library. And, in the, and, and the other is the Library of Congress. Uh, they have journals from captains of slave ships that describe what they did. Yeah. And so just, just starting there as a baseline, if you really, uh, if you don't believe what's written in school books, if you don't believe what's being said on this podcast, if you don't, go there. You can order transfer to some of these. You can get some of these things in. Uh, there's some books that have actually been written based on those those diaries. I didn't write them. You didn't write them. These were mm -hmm. written back. Uh, every every uh, ship has to have a journal, and the captain's responsible for keeping those journals. And they describe what was done to the cargo, which is Africans. Uh, yeah. When they died, what did they do with the bodies? They threw them overboard. Uh, when they were too rebellious, what did they do? They made an example of them, hung them. Uh, in one instance, uh, they would tie the rope under the arms. And this is this is from my research and reading. Uh, when I was inside, I would always ask my mom to send me books from uh, the Library of Congress that that uh, dealt with different topics because I wanted to know like where the scholars really kept uh, 
what I called his hidden treasures of, of knowledge. Yeah. Uh, one thing that I always remember was where they, they described they, uh, there was a baby that wouldn't stop crying. And so they, uh, they put this collar on the baby and, and, and the mom just went crazy trying to protect her child like any mom would. And so they took the mom and they put tighter the rope under her arms and uh, they dropped her down into the water. And uh, the writing says she let out a screech. And when they lifted her body back up, half of it was gone from the sharks that were in the water. Because the wa- sharks would automatically follow these slave ships because they knew they're they throwing over food. They would throw people bodies. Right. Sorry. And so uh, you can try to rewrite history you can try to erase it but there are places where like unless you have like a, just a complete destabilization of government you just get rid of all those things those things are there um for people that that think um one race is superior to, to or less than uh look at all of the gains that all these different races including african-americans like Look what we've put into this country. Look at the inventions. Look at the ideas. Look at the technology. I think when you think about it, if people really just took a step back and said, let me look at this uh, objectively, you'd have to say that we've all contributed to the greatness of this country. And if we've all contributed, that means it makes us stronger if we accept the diversity that we have. Yeah. We we we, we weaken it when we refuse to do that. Like how how how, how can people not see that? And I know some people uh, might not agree with that. And uh, uh, he's not giving us our, our just. I'm looking at the whole picture. Like every single race has contributed to the success of this country. And, and I will say this: that the economy that this that, that this country was built on to begin with did come from the blood, sweat, and tears of Africans that have been kidnapped and enslaved. See, and that is what needs to be in our history books. And I think that will, to me, that's a sign that our country's ready to change when they own it. Because we can, we can read about the horrors of the Holocaust and see piles of bodies and teeth being pulled out and all the other stuff, but we refuse to look at what America did to slaves. And to me, that's what, that's what makes me kind of think that, um, that, to me, that's the canary in the coal mine. When that occurs... That's when I think the United States is ready to go, okay, we're serious about, you know, uh, doing what's right, you know, for me, that, I mean, my opinion. You, you have had president instead of it. Like, I think it was Clinton uh, apologized. Biden did. Um, we need I mean, more an apology. We need it in the books. It, it, I mean, it, sorry. It, it, I, I, I'm agree. Getting, I'm I agree. Getting, I'm, getting, <laughs> I'm getting aggressive. I, I, I agree to all those things, but here's the reality of it. You still have at least half this country that hasn't been or may not be aware of, of, of what truth is. Um, I think the best thing that we can do is just continue to shine. Uh, if you get enough people that are pushing for good, eventually, like, it it will smother and drown out the bad. Um, yeah, you're right. No, you're right about that. I'm not thinking that way, but you're right. But And, and the other thing is, like, people need to stand up. Like, the, the smallest contributions you have to the good matter no matter how small it is and like people think like well if i do that it's not gonna matter yes it will mm-hmm. when you keep just giving back and, and, and like just putting good out like you can't it's the same like it's a stormy day and it's cloudy and the sun comes up it burns off those clouds like you you can't stop it you can't stop the good if you just keep no matter how small it is you just keep putting into it um 
the, the one thing I think we do lack in this in this generation, um, we don't have a moral voice. What I mean by that is like, after King, who did we have? It's interesting you raise that question. I've, I have a friend of mine, her name's Christina Laster. She's a civil rights activist. She used to be the, the uh, NC, uh, NAACP um, the education chair. And now she works for the Al Sharpton's Action Network. She's the education person there. She pushes against racism in the education system. She had a conversation back when George Floyd was murdered. Mm-hmm. And we were, we were discussing this, like, how come, like, what's up with the BLM? Why don't they put up a leader? You know, remember the Black Lives Matter movement mm-hmm. was getting big. And we thought we were just having a discussion. And you know, when you're talking, you're kind of working through the problems yourself. And I was like, you know what? This is smart how it's set up because whether or not you agree with BLM or not, regardless, every time there's an individual who's pushing for black uh, leadership, moral, economic, they're assassinated. BLM is just distributed in like almost like um, like the internet. There's this little hubs of groups, but there's not an individual leader. But think about it. Every person that has stood up for uh, from the Black Panthers to, you know, forward or backwards, something bad's happened to them. They get labeled a certain way and there's like a, a thing that excludes it. So I'm thinking if someone steps up, it's it's going to be brutal, you know, if not fatal. I think Obama... Uh, there'd be I my think, negativeness. There we go. I, I think President Obama could be that voice. <laughs> nah, man. I, no. I, 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 think he can, I, think, I think he can be that voice. I think... I, sorry, hold on a second. I'm caught up in this court. I think he can too, but... Here's the thing. I love Obama. He's, I voted for him twice. I went to his inauguration. I have a campaign. I'm, I'm down for him. I'm proud of what he's done. And like you said, when you see that as an example, it's like, you know, this is possible. A black person can be president. But at the same time, an organization like BLM, Black Lives Matter, should not, it was, it was it, its inception came during his uh, presidency because of the, uh, the police were, you know, police brutality, you know? And so... That's a weird kind of paradox. Like, why would that even have to happen? He's in the position. This is what I said, but I, I, I've evolved. I was thinking, why didn't he step in when George Floyd was killed? Why wasn't he one of the first people to say, no, nah, man? Or, or while he was in there, he grew up on this. He uh, was a, uh, was a um, nonprofit kind of your work. Is that nonprofit work or what it's called? Yeah, he was a community organizer. Community organizer. In South uh, Chicago, he knows what the police do, does to people. Why do you get in there? Why do you open up some type of investigation and start changing? He did none of those things. With George Floyd, he wasn't in office anymore. No, I'm talking about when he got in office as president, period. You don't I, need George Floyd's situation. So, so when, he, when he got in office, the Department of Justice got in. Like, look at it even today. The Department of Justice actually opened up more investigations and prosecutions than ever in the history of the... Oh, really? Yeah. See, I didn't know that. Like, like they, they really got involved in a lot of these investigations and prosecutions. Uh, Trump even talked about that at one time. Like, he said that it was misuse of, 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 of the government. Like, but that's, <laughs> that's what they're supposed to do. When you have a police force that may not be on the up and up, we're supposed to have another third party, uh, a governmental agency that can look in and investigate and prosecute if necessary. Yeah. So, I mean, some people say he didn't go far enough uh, for black people as a president. I, I kind of understand the position that he's in. And he said it one time, he wasn't the president of black America. He was the president of, of America. And he also had to take in this into consideration. 
how well he did is going to set the stage for the next black, Latino, Asian, the next person of color that will be president, the next woman. I agree. If he if he went too far, like he didn't, we say he didn't go far enough. <laughs> look at look at the backlash of what happened afterwards. Like just, I'm trying to stay out of the political realm, but yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, I'm but, trying to. I'm sorry. Like, so, but he he demonstrated what could be done, and so he kind of set this, the 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 standard and the stage for the next person of color that could be in that office. I agree with what you're saying. And this is how I evolved because first I was just upset. I felt disappointed. I'm going to speak to my ignorance right now. I'm admitting ignorance on this, but the second part, I was like, when, when, when Obama got reelected for a second term, I was like, oh yeah, it's on. He was waiting on the, he's going to do it on the way out. He's going to hit him with the reparations. He's going to do all these things. And none of those things occurred, but I understand now because someone explained to me that there's other branches of executive government that he has to face off with. And he just can't, you know, you know, wave a, you know, hit a button or, you know, send an email and then boom, this is going to change. He has a lot of pushback. And at the time, the Republicans hate him so much. The opposing party hate him so much that even Obamacare, a program for free health care to all citizens, they're still just trying to even just get his name off it. You know what I'm saying? Like they're trying to get it, get it Trump care or, you know, to try to come up with a different version. Like they're trying to erase everything he did. And so I understand it better now because I was just kind of out of ignorance, not out, kind of completely out of ignorance thinking he could just get in there and he's going to wait till the, the reelection and just let off, you know, because what are they going to do? He's not trying to get reelected. But when I say let off reparations, no, no, I, I, <laughs> the other part, like he could have signed a, an executive order, but guess what? That executive order can be reversed just as quickly as it was written. Um, Exactly. Yeah. The, the other thing is like where we're at, like right now today, our political discourse has gone down. It's toxic. Horribly. Like I remember when uh, McCain and uh, uh, John McCain and, and Obama were, were uh, debating, and, and uh, someone in the office says something uh, disparaging about uh, President Obama, and McCain says, "Stop. We're not going to do that." That's what's up. And, and and he said, I'm gonna give I'm gonna give this man the respect that he deserves, just as he like, that's what we're supposed to do. That's political discourse. We can disagree. We don't have to name call. We don't have to sink down to our lowest. Like, like I never thought that I would say, like, I miss McCain. I miss people like McCain. Like I'm not I a brought Republican. the wrong guest. I brought the wrong guest. I, I, I'm I'm not a Republican, <laughs> but but the, the political discourse, we can disagree. Yeah. But there's honor in how we disagree. And civ civility. It's, it's, exactly. And, and we don't, you don't have that now or it's, or it's, it's, it's diminished greatly. Um, no, you don't have it. You're being nice. You, you don't have it. These you, people. You still have some. You still have some. No, you have some. But you remember, what's her name? Green? That uh, woman. I mean, she's like yelling out stuff like she's at the movies where people up there speaking lies, you know, or just saying things like it's, and it's acceptable now. Like that type of behavior is acceptable, but but that's also dictated by the people who go to vote. Yeah, and so that 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 kind of circles back to this: um, your your voice is your vote, and so when it's time for people to go out and vote, they need to vote. Uh, you need to understand, like the way that we live, the way that this country is ran, 
uh, from the local level all the way to the federal level, it matters. Your, your vote matters. And for people, especially in the black community, who say that their votes don't matter, they do. Yeah. Uh, uh, especially local and state, for sure. But presidential, too. Like, yes. Like, you have to vote. And, and if you have family that are in different states, Texas, Nebraska, Georgia, New Mexico, tell them to vote. They have to vote because if you don't, you're not, you're not participating in our civic engagement. You're just like, you're, 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 you're not in the game. You're not, you, you can't complain about the game if you're not willing to be in it. Yeah. And, and to be in it means that you have to go out and vote. And you need to be informed about what you're voting for or voting against or, or who you're voting for or who you're voting against. Yeah. No, I, I agree. And I, make it, I made it a point um, to vote. But I'm independent, so I, don't, I can't do the, what's, it, what's that, the... Um, the caucus ones where they you vote for like a Democrat president. I wait for but them to figure that the, out. The, the caucus wouldn't matter in California. California is a Democratic state. Democratic. It's gonna it's gonna go uh, for Blue. the president. It's gonna go to to the. Uh, like, your vote still matters, so you still yeah. gotta vote. <laughs> yeah, no, I understand uh, because you have a bunch of different uh, uh, other elections uh, for Congress and for Senate that that also happened during that time. That time. Yeah, yeah. Well, I want. I'm trying to make mindful of time because I know you have a limited time, and I want to. I want to. Um, Talk to you about ARC. Um, I know we touched on it a little bit, but um, what is like the vision of ARC? Like what's the goal of ARC? Are you guys, is the organization planning to expand to other states and plan this, you know, you guys are working throughout California. What regions do you guys, like say if someone's in San Francisco, can they participate in ARC? What if they're in Texas? Or can you explain a little bit more how, like how your outreach works? And things like that. So, uh, ARC, which is the acronym for the Anti-Recidivism Coalition, is a, a state uh, community-based organization. Our main office is in Los Angeles, and the state is California, of course. Uh, it's open to anybody in California that's formerly incarcerated to become a member. Um, the locations of how you actually get to the resources are, are not as spread out as we'd like them to be, but they 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 we are working on uh, providing more resources in more areas, and so. Uh, ARC works in three areas. Um, it's, it's a criminal justice reform organization, and our mission is to end mass incarceration in California. And how we do that is by first policy change. Uh, we've now passed, um, I think, 36 pieces of legislation, including Miranda rights for juveniles. Um, if you're familiar with the Central Park Five, that happened to them because they didn't have Miranda rights. Uh, we've ended life without the possibility of parole for juveniles. Uh, we've gotten uh, the right to serve on a jury given back to people after they've had a conviction. Uh, uh, the most recent law that I've just recently benef benefited from uh, was uh, Senate Bill 731, which allows uh, pretty much everyone that's been convicted of a, a, a crime, if you meet the criteria to have your record expunged. And so I had my record expunged from a violent felony just uh, this month. Congratulations. I saw that on there. I couldn't make it out. I know you were talking about a lot, but congratulations on Thank that. Thank you. Thank you. And so uh, that puts me in line for, for a pardon, but it also, uh, that particular piece of policy will allow me now to be able to present to kids in LA Unified School District uh, with a felony on your record, you can't go into school districts. Really? Exactly. Like people don't realize that you can go into some of the charter schools if you're invited, but uh, with a felony, you're not supposed to be on campus of LA Unified School. Well, so, you know what? Then how? Then a lot of the 
Uh, I used to be a teacher for a little while, and there's some parents that have some felonies that come on campus. But uh, yeah, so so policy is one area that we work in, and that's on state, local, and federal level. Um, uh, we're we're really uh, involved in the youth justice reimagine movement here in Los Angeles County, uh, but also uh, a lot of state policies. I, I mentioned uh, having uh, therapy available for people that are in prison. Uh, so. And we do that uniquely through our membership. Our members advocate for these policy changes. Once we, we, we brainstorm with our members who are both incarcerated and formerly incarcerated um, on what law should be, cha- should be changed and why. Uh, and the goal is to enhance public safety while uh, making our system more equitable. Um, so, so that's policy. The second area that we work in uh, is inside facilities. And so uh, we have a team called the Hope and Redemption Team, which is a team of former life prisoners that go into prisons in, in all 31 prisons in the state of California and run rehabilitative programs that we created. As a former life prisoner, I helped create programs along with others. And so we run some of those programs that we uh, had written years ago and have uh, enhanced since coming home and others like emotional intelligence, financial literacy, uh, a relapse prevention, um, uh, thinking for change, different curriculums that help people prepare to come home. Uh, our newest initiative is uh, the Credible Messenger uh, Program here in L.A. County. Uh, we now have 10 formerly incarcerated uh, Credible Messengers that go in and run rehabilitative programs in uh, our secure youth treatment facility at Barry J. Nightoff in uh, uh, Silmar, California, and then also in Los Padrinos, um, Prior to this, we had life coaches that went into the Department of Juvenile Justice uh, facilities up and down the state. There were four of them. Uh, Pine Grove um, was the fire camp. The second was OH and Chad, and then you had Ventura. And so we had life coaches that went in there that were all formerly incarcerated mentors, trained in uh, transformative mentoring and other curriculums. Um, We now, in conjunction with Amity uh, and, and Cal Fire, run the Pine Grove fire camp. Uh, as a matter of fact, they were just celebrated at a, a Veterans Day parade uh, up in uh, uh, Pine Grove. Uh, it was in the newspaper. It was great. These are kids that are fighting fires or helping fight fires. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's the second area where, where uh, uh, we uh, run programs. Uh, I, I created the Hope and Redemption team. It was my belief that if we had mentors that went into facilities, we could decrease the level of violence in prisons, and we could also help people come home. Uh, getting them to understand that true accountability comes from within the system can't hold you rec- accountable. The system can incarcerate you, but that's not that's not accountability. Accountability is when a person takes responsibility for their actions. And so uh, the dream was to be able to have this in every prison and help people come home uh, and help people understand, like, the impact that they've had on their communities and hold themselves accountable and then come home as the best version of themselves. And then uh, for the past 10 years I've been going in, uh, past nine years I've been going into juvenile facilities and and Barry J working with kids that are facing long sentences. And eventually that blossomed into our Credible Messenger program that's funded by the uh, Department of Youth Development here in L.A. County. Uh, the last area that we work in is uh, reentry, and so we do really robust reentry that covers housing, uh, housing for both adults and for uh, people that were incarcerated in the, in the juvenile system. And so, our housing also has uh, a therapist connected to each uh, housing uh, uh, site, so that every member has access <clears throat> to therapy free. 
Um, we also have career pathways. I, I spoke about the building trades. Uh, any one of the, the building trades that's available in L.A. and Orange County is available to our members. And we're now working on uh, uh, presenting that potent, that uh, op- those opportunities in the Inland Empire uh, and in Sacramento. Uh, and then firefighting. People who've been incarcerated and that have served at firefighting camps, they can come to our Ventura Training Center and become firefighters. Historically, that was not possible. If you came home with a felony, you couldn't be a firefighter. So now we've now helped put over 100 formerly incarcerated people into firefighting jobs. Wow. And so when you think about those people that are in those incredible red engines and that are running into fires to save our homes and save lives, these are also formerly incarcerated people. Uh, Underlying all of this, what I which I consider the backbone of our organization is our membership support. It's a community of formerly incarcerated people that just supports each other. And so everything that a person could possibly need when they come home, we try to provide. Yeah. Uh, family reunification, therapy, uh, just a place like our, the office is a place. Uh, this, this morning when I was in the office, uh, you have the regular uh, case management, life coach things that's going on, but then you also have a an area where you can play ping pong, an area where you can uh, uh, play video games or just read and study, uh, but a community also that supports you and, and you don't feel like you're being judged. Uh, there's a lot that goes into it. Uh, every month we hold a, a community uh, a, a membership support meeting, and if a person needs something, uh, you're struggling with uh, an addiction, we, we provide services for that. Uh, healthy relationships, uh, seeking safety, the things that... That's, if you've never been incarcerated, you may not know the needs of a person that's been incarcerated that's coming home. We provide those things. And we know what's needed because 80, 75 to 80% of my staff are formerly incarcerated. I'm formerly incarcerated. Our idea base comes from uh, both people that are incarcerated and people that are formerly incarcerated. Uh, but we also have staff that are not uh, formerly incarcerated that are incredible, that add to the value of the resources that we provide. Do you, um, uh, what's the status in California, do you know, of trying juveniles as adults? Oh, I love that question. Um, Because that's one that really bothers me. So we helped pass a a statewide initiative called Proposition 57. Uh, Governor Brown carried it, but, and and he added that the the sentence in hand, there's three pieces to it. One piece is to stop the direct file of, of juveniles. Direct file meant that if you committed a, an adult crime, automatically you'd be tried as an adult. Uh, the second piece was incentivizing rehabilitative program, meaning that you could get a certain amount of time off if you finished a college degree, if you finished certain programs. And the third piece was looking at how to decrease the impact of enhancements. Um, so Prop 57 put in place a... Uh, what they call now a transfer hearing, excuse me, or an evaluation, where when a kid commits an adult crime, uh, I think it's five factors that they have to uh, consider before they decided they're going to try him or her as an adult. Prior to Prop 57, almost every kid that was in a juvenile facility that was uh, uh, arrested for a violent felony went to state prison. Now that number is hugely decreased. Wait, what percentage? Did you say prison? the vast majority, if you committed oh a violent crime, you, you, like, I, I can give you a couple of great examples. There's a kid named Derek. Uh, he's not a kid, a young man. Uh, as, a, as a 15-year-old, he was convicted of aiding and abetting. Uh, 
uh, this is in L.A.? This is in L.A. Uh, of, of, of the attempted murder. I think it was an attempted murder charge, and he was given 50 years to life. He was 15. We sent him away. And when I say we, I mean society. Like, I'm a voter. Um, and then we passed Prop 57, and, and, and uh, Derek, who's in state prison, pretty much uh, uh, a throwaway kid, had the opportunity to come back because they had to, they had to offer him a, a transfer hearing because of his age. And he ended up coming back and going through our fire camp. Two years ago, Derek became a full-time Cal Wildland firefighter. Oh, wow. This kid is like, I took him in a juvenile hall about a year ago, right? No, two years ago, actually, when he had just, he, he said, can he go back in because he was about to be deployed? And I remember listening to him tell his story to the kids that are in juvenile hall. And, and like, he's, just, he's, he's lifting weights and all those things. And he said, I work out and lift weights not just to be big. He said, I work out and lift weights because I don't want to fail anyone. And he said, if I have to carry someone down a hill to get away from a fire, I need to be physically fit to be able to do this. He said, that's why I work out. Not for the look, not because I want to be a big guy. He said, I don't want to ever let anyone down. Wow. That's the type of investment we need in people. So this, like, And I can give you dozens and dozens of more stories of kids that we threw away and because of that law, they've come back home, and, and they're doing exceptionally well in, in society. Yeah, no, the, yeah, because I just, that's one of the things that really bothered me. And there's a there's a young man, this happened in the 90s, he's from Kern County, and he was one. He was the first to be, I think the governor at the time, was it Pete Wilson? Pete Wilson, yeah. Yeah, he, he, when he brought that in, I think he yeah. brought in trying kids as juveniles or, or passed some laws, the three strikes, and they- 95, I think it was, when they, yeah. Yeah, he was the first ever. You know, young black man, oh, young kid. He's probably, I think he was 14, and he robbed a liquor store, but he didn't get any money because they, they didn't think his gun was real. It was real, but he didn't think it was, he left. He didn't even get anything out of the robbery. And they sentenced him to like, I don't know, 30 years or something, right? And at 14 years old, they put him in solitary confinement. He was in solitary confinement. I'm talking um, not segregated, but in the shoe or whatever. Yeah, security housing. Yeah, for what, seven, eight years. And he developed all kinds of mental health problems. And um, I, when I was a teacher and a classroom teacher, I used to show the, um, there's a documentary on YouTube you could see about him because I have a family member that works in mental health down there and they, they work with him and he's, he's just not right. He's never taken drugs or, well, I'm probably when he was younger, I'm talking about as an adult, but just the damage because you know, your brain's developing, you're a kid and getting put in, put like that. And I showed it to my, um, when I was a teacher, a classroom teacher, I should show it to my students as um, just multiple lessons in there about law enforcement is kind of scaring them straight, but you know, the justice system, you know, I, I just don't, I can't make sense of trying a kid as an adult because they're not just by dictionary definition, they're not an adult, you know? And they're so, so part of our job, you, uh, me and everybody that's listening is we need to change the narrative on that. Like, let kids be kids. Uh, there's a national movement that's being uh, led by uh, a number of organizations. We're involved. Uh, our our uh, organization in that realm is being led by Michael Mendoza, our policy director. Uh, and it's a bill to let kids be kids, meaning like when when you have a, a, a child that's underage, like why would you want to just say they can't change? Yeah. Like you have to believe in the humanity of, of, of a person, especially a child. Child, like... I was no at 54. I'm nowhere like when I was 30. When when and then at 30, I was nowhere like when I was 20. When I was 20, I definitely wasn't like when I was 15. 
<laughs> and so if we think about those things, especially with the brain, brain science that's, that, that's been established, a person's brain is not fully developed until they're 25, 26 years old. Exactly. And so if we take that into consideration when a kid does something, like one of the things we need to do is look into his or her background. Why did they do it? Oftentimes we want retribution, but we don't want to understand why. I was reading a case of this kid. Um, I'm, I'm uh, um, enrolled in Loyola's, Loyola Marymount's uh, uh, forensic gang expert uh, class right now, and there's a case that we were reading. And uh, I can't say the kid's name, but but the factors of the case went sort of like this. This kid uh, uh, at six was, like, just uh, abused mm-hmm. in, in, every, in, in every imaginable way. Okay. Uh, by the time he was 15, he was arrested for an attempted murder. Um, we failed this kid. Like, we talk about second chances. This kid never had a first chance. At six, the people that were supposed to take care of him, just like, how do you recover from that when you're six and you're abused? Yeah. And then how do we as a society say, okay, we're going to punish you for what you did? Like, and I'm not saying that we shouldn't hold a person accountable when they, they commit a, a violent act. I'm saying we should also understand why this person is acting that way. Accountability can only truly come when a person takes responsibility for their actions. If you throw a person away and lock them up and you don't help them understand why they made their choices, we're failing ourselves and we're failing the children that we're supposed to protect. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I absolutely agree. And that's a... um. Yeah, that's something that just hit his homes for me because I, I have so many friends from when I was younger that, you know, right when they were 18, like, it was weird. They even got three strikes within the age of 18, like the first offense, um, two strikes. You know you know how they do it? And then you get the third one, like, maybe they might be 19, and they're gone, and that's it. And it's just, I even think at 18, you're a kid still, and I can imagine being 14 years old. And you could actually see it on MSNBC sometimes. I watched Locked Up Raw, uh, that show. And I remember they were like in the, those southern states, like Louisiana. And I mean, there's kids and they were 80 years, you know, and they're, you know, 15, 16 years old. And it's just, it's mind boggling. It's in a, in a country like ours that's so advanced, you yeah. know. But um, two things, and I'll wrap it up with this because I know, I know you have to run. I'm sorry for keeping you. I probably kept you long. But um, yeah, I did. Sorry. But... Um, I have to ask this question. When you started changing and God changed you, did you, like like people say, you, you speak well. Did your old friends go, man, why are you talking like that? <laughs> That's what I got. No, so so here's, here's one. I, I learned, even when I go to juvenile halls, I, I, I learned how to speak this way. And, and I didn't do it just, we actually had a Toastmasters that we created in prison. Oh, really? We had and we competed. I have pictures on the wall at my office where we won. Like we, <laughs> we whooped some butt of, of some groups that came into the prison. Uh, uh-huh. And so, uh, we learned how to write speeches. We learned how to speak. We learned uh, even now. I, I don't do all the correct enunciations. I still say acts. So if, if mm-hmm. Scott, who's our founder, y'all, <laughs> when I say I, I ask somebody, be like, did it hurt? Uh, because it's it's asked. Uh, yeah, and and so there's some things that I still don't properly enunciate, but I learned how to speak this way, and and I even in the juvenile halls when I go in, there's two things that I tell kids that can never be taken from you: what you write and what you say. They can't take your voice from you, and they can't take your ability to write. And if you graduate from college, they can't take that from you. And so I, I try to get them to understand your voice is power. 
Yeah. Uh, if you use your voice properly and not use a bunch of cuss words and slang words, people will list, look up. Like if you go into a courtroom, oftentimes the judge is looking down at paperwork. And if you address the court in a manner that says, look at me, like, excuse me, Your Honor, may I speak, please? Who said that? And then they see you. And yeah. now you have an opportunity to, to, to express yourself, but do in a way where they feel you. Yeah. They, they see you, now you want them to feel you. And that comes from command of the English language. And the other part is writing. Mm-hmm. When you write, if you really write something profound, people will read that and then they'll share it with someone, someone else. And eventually your voice, whether written or spoken, reaches thousands and thousands of people. A kid one asked, once asked me, uh, how do you know that? And I said, look at books. He said, what do you mean? I said, you ever read the Bible? He said, yeah. I said, who wrote that? And he sat there for me and I said, imagine how many countries the Bible and how many languages. Yeah. I said, now let's move away from the Bible and let me ask you this. And, and, and I started naming different books that were, that, that were written that we had read. And I said, uh, there's one called a man think, that, uh, As a Man Thinketh. I said, how many people you think read that? And he was like, it's on the internet. It's, he's like thousands. I said, how about millions? I said, now what if you were to write something that profound? Two things that happen. One, you'll be able to reach so many people. Two, they'll forever remember you because you wrote that book. Yeah, that's that's actually uh, that's very insightful, man. Yeah, you don't think that way because we, we kind of think, you know, most people think, uh, who's going to re- read my stuff? Like if you write, you don't realize how far it's going to expand. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And the Bible, like say, for example, with Jesus, it was just 12 dudes. And look how big, uh, like, uh, that's the ultimate example. Uh, this is bad, but multi-level marketing, it has a negative connotation. But one guy told another guy, and next day, look, it's worldwide. Yeah. It's worldwide. No, because the reason why I asked you that, because that's the, that's the thing I got. Because I moved away, and then I went to school, and I don't talk with my hand, <laughs> you know, my hand. So the people were like, my, even some of my cousins are like, why you talk white now? <laughs> like, they gave me a hard time for it. So I asked them, what is white? What exactly. Is I learned proper to speak properly. What the hell? How about I have a command of the language that I speak? See, I wasn't wise at that point. I was just like, oh, sorry. You know, you had a code switch back into, but now that I'm old, I, I don't hide it. This is yeah, how I speak. I, and, uh, and going to juvenile halls, I, I share with youngsters, like what code switching is. And I chop it up with them and they'll be like, huh? And, like, and I tell them, like, when, when I facilitate classes in, in juvenile hall, we always have a, a list of rules. And if you violate those, you have rules. You have to do push-ups, and and those rules include you can't do any cussing when you speak, you can't use the N word, <laughs> you can't disrespect anybody, you can't call any names. Some people are like, it, what, 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 you took all my tools. I don't have any weapons. <laughs> One of the kids said, "What's left?" <laughs> yes. <laughs> and so, but what happens is they they begin to learn it, and when they cuss over and over again, they're just doing push-ups, and then eventually they they begin to speak slower. Yeah, and I tell them you you've just learned the first art of public speaking. Slow down. Yeah, when you slow down, you enunciate better. When you slow down, your thought process is better. When you slow down, people hear you, and you're able to translate what that person is saying. When you're talking too fast, you stutter. You use fillers. Uh, uh, um, 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 like that's what happens when you go too fast. If you slow down. And these push-ups are making you slow down. Mm-hmm. You don't use fillers, the uhs, the ums, the feel me, you know what I'm saying. You don't have to use those because you slow down enough for you to actually have your thoughts meet your voice. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. That's true. Um, yeah. I took a debate class in college, and I had to learn that. 
And even when I'm talking sometimes, if I'm having a dispute, like you and I are having a dispute, even before I speak, I'll try to think of how you're probably going to address, you know, counter it. And I try to diffuse that at the beginning when you start getting a little bit more advanced. Uh, with the ARC, Anti-Recidivism Coalition, how can someone find that online? And how can they, if they want to help, what, what options do people have? Uh, so you can go online, antirecidivism.org, and you'll find us. You can go to our website and instructions on how you can help to donate. Volunteering is on the website. Uh, if you want to follow me, I'm usually on Instagram, SWLewis01. All right, cool, cool. Thank you. Um, do you have any books? Did you write a book about your life yet? That has to be coming, man. I'm working on it. Okay. <laughs> it's been a work in progress for a while. All right, all right. No, I, I, I was thinking you have to have a book. No, my brother Shaka does, though. Uh, if you haven't read uh, Shaka's books, uh, Writing My Wrongs and, uh, and Sons to Society, Sons to Society, when I read it, the first chapter had me crying. Uh, he's, he's a, Worse uh, than me just a few minutes ago? It will. It is impactful. It is a book that I think every person, especially if you had someone that was incarcerated, a father that was incarcerated. Uh, I, I once told Shaka this, like, in my library at home, I have uh, Alex Haley, uh, Claude Brown, Richard Wright, Shaka Senghor. I say, you're in that, 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 that collection of books. Uh, brother's a prof prolific writer. He's incredible. Can you, how can someone find that book? Does he have a website? Do you know? Or? You can find it on Amazon. Amazon. Like, and, this book is... And the name is what again? Shaka? Shaka Singor. Do you know how to spell that? No? Uh, not no, off okay. the top of my head. Okay, phonetically, just Google it. I'm, I'm pretty sure. Just, just look for Writing My Wrongs. Writing My Wrongs. The book. The book. Okay. And thank you for sharing that. No, because that, that's an excellent resource. And your friend, Sam, a.k.a. El Diablo. I want to meet that guy. I'll make that happen. I All right, yeah. Happen. I go okay. up to North. I'm actually going up to Northern California um, later this week, or just whenever. I would love to meet him because I love people that have um, that have been there, you know, uh, or just, you know. I think we all have something in common, just being black. But the commonality of of the struggle of you know our childhood and life, and you know, he just sounds like a very interesting person. Because even when you brought him up, you were just talking. Well, let me get back to him, and you had this big smile came across your face. I bet he has a million stories. Oh, know? he's got a million. Let me, let me say this. I didn't believe Sam had changed. <laughs> that and that was that was uh, six years ago, I think now. Because uh, I I hadn't I wasn't there with him, and when I was there with him, he was still like El Diablo. He he was the big homie. Uh, who let me do my thing to go home. And then when I saw him come home and I'm like, okay, it's, if Sam can change, like anyone can change. But I also know that God had his hand on him. Um, yeah. Uh, <laughs> you'd, you'd have to you'd have to have lived it to understand it. Yeah, 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 yeah. But yeah, hey, man, like think about the Apostle Paul, right? Yeah. yeah. I mean... He was so much changed. I mean, you know, you know this already. That when they took him to the other apostles, they're like, "Nah, he didn't uh, change. No, no. why'd you bring him to the meeting?" <laughs> they were upset. <laughs> but hey, Sam, thank you so much for taking the time to share your faith, your story, and you know, just knowledge. And I just, you know, I'm very grateful because I know you're, I know you're big time, and so you just come in is this humble podcast. And uh, but I do have, you know, the, the growership is the listenership is is growing well and um i'm just grateful man i'm just gonna be up here brown nosing but i'm very very grateful i appreciate you brother yeah and i'm not big time i'm just 
I'm, no, a serv- I'm a servant of the people. That's what I am. I see your social media profile. You're big time in it. All right. You, you shake it. Okay. I'll just leave. I'll, this guy's humble. All right. So, but thanks again, man. I really right, appreciate absolutely. it. Thank man. you, brother. God bless you. All right. God bless.